morning, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Everybody staying warm? Yes? Good deal. Um, if I have not met you, my name is Brett Powell, and I work with a ministry called Campus Outreach, and it is a privilege to be here with you this morning. It is uh, even more of a privilege to get to open God's Word up uh, for you uh, and, and to teach the Holy Scriptures uh, to you. You know, I just want to say, as I got here this morning, I, I you know, always try to get uh, to my location that I'm preaching a little early and, and just try to pray and, and, uh, and ask the Lord to be with us. And we're going to do that in just a second together. But I just saw so many people at the church outside, uh, um, you know, shoveling up snow and ice and, and breaking that up and, and inside serving. And uh, there's training that has gone on as far as uh, just the audio that, that you're hearing and, and, and uh, sound and all that. There are so many people behind the scenes that are sacrificially serving our church. That is part of our vision here at K Bible Chapel, is that we would be a church that would sacrificially serve. And I got here and I was so blown away by that. Some of you were, were part of those folks serving, and I just want to say thank you. And I just want those that, um, that don't always get to see behind the scenes um, to just, just to thank God uh, in your own heart. God, thank you that someone came here uh, and turned the heater on. And, and uh, so it is, a, it is a privilege for us to be here and to be with with men and women that are serving so sacrificially so that we could come and worship together. So I want to make the most of our time together. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, and that's what we're going to read today. The title of our talk today is Audacious Faith. Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to be at most of the time today. It also parallels in Luke chapter 7, if you want to put a marker there as well. But Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, let's read the Word of God together. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What a blessed story we get here in the book of Matthew. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. So great physician, we do just come to you now. And we thank you, God, that you, that you are mighty to save. We thank you that there are no barriers to you and and I pray for those in this room right now uh, that have, um, they're here to investigate your claims. Christ, I pray that you would heal them from their paralysis and their pain and their suffering. I pray, Father, that you would save them from a spiritual death. And Father, for those in this room that have you, that, that walk in you, Christ, I pray that they would be encouraged and commended by their intercession of those that do not know you. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us your holy word, illuminate your scriptures. God, that you would be with us in this time. 
and that you would get all the honor, glory, and praise for this time. Amen. And so we, we find ourselves in, uh, in the book of, of Matthew 8, and, and we see something amazing. We see Jesus marveling at someone's faith. Now, we, we all love a good faith story. Uh, I, I love to talk to people and hear their faith stories, how they came to Christ personally. I love to hear uh, how God answered in specific and unique ways to encourage someone. I love to hear faith stories. I heard one recently and, uh, and was amazed by it. Uh, it was a story about a pastor uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. My wife actually grew up going to his church there in Birmingham at Briarwood Church. Uh, and, and here was the story. Uh, there was a group of men that got together and they prayed uh, and they spent time together and they asked the Lord for very specific things. And one of the men in the prayer group got his heart stirred to, to share with his neighbor. And so he goes to share the gospel with his neighbor and begins to um, have conversation with this, uh, with this neighbor. And the neighbor says, listen, I am agnostic. I do not believe that there is maybe even a God. I'm not even sure I believe in God. And so he says to his neighbor, you know, we have this prayer group. And at this prayer group, we pray for very specific things. Uh, and, you know, as we pray for specific things, God has shown me that he exists because he answers my prayers. And the man that is agnostic thought about it for a second. He said, you know, I want to come to your prayer group. And I'll take, take a step back there if, you, if you're in a prayer group. Wow, can you imagine that? An agnostic wants to come to your prayer group to see if your prayers really work. <laughs> okay, I'm going to test your faith now. And so he says, I'll come. And so the man reluctantly, okay, come on to the prayer group. He brings him into the prayer group, and all the brothers are there, and they're getting ready to pray, and they have a new member, so they're inviting him in. And the agnostic guy says, hey, I just want to be clear with you here. I don't really believe in God, but I want to see you pray something specific to see if your God is real. And they thought about it. They said, we really want you to see our God. What would you like for us to pray for it's in the middle of July. He says, I want you to pray that the church, that, that the auditorium or the sanctuary would be filled this Sunday. That's what I want you to pray. If your God is real, he could fill the church with people. And they said, whoa, 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 do you realize it's July? People are on vacation. People are out of town. There's no way this church is going to be filled this Sunday. And he said, is your God real? He said, our God's real. Brother, we'll pray that prayer. He said, but let's qualify. What does it mean that the church is full? He said, I want it to be where they have to bring out the green chairs. <laughs> bring out the green chairs, and if I see them bringing out the green chairs, I will know your God answered my prayer. So he says, okay, we'll pray. So they prayed the prayer, amazing time together. And that Sunday they show up, and uh, the service is starting, and the pastor comes in to do his pastoral prayer, and he looks out, and it's about 75% full, and he's going, oh, no, God. Oh, no. He looks over at the agnostic, and he is smiling from ear to ear. <laughs> I told you, your God wasn't real. And so the pastor begins to pray his pastoral prayer for the people in the congregation, and he kind of sneaks a peek as he's praying, and he looks out into the parking lot, and he sees cars coming in. So he tries to delay his prayer. <laughs> I'll just pray a little bit longer, and maybe God will do something. By the time he finishes his pastoral prayer, he looks up, and guess what he sees? They're bringing in the green chairs. And he couldn't believe it. He said, wow, wow, God, I cannot believe you just did this. And so he looks over at the agnostic and he goes, I see that we're bringing in the green chairs. <laughs> and, and he's kind of making the connection for his, his agnostic friend. Well, that, that agnostic friend became a believer in Jesus Christ soon after that day. 
put his faith in Christ and ended up joining that prayer group and became a vibrant member of that local church. Did you know that faith is a gift? Faith is a gift from God. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of the unseen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of the unseen. And God gives us faith as a gift, and he grows it in the vineyards of the earth. So as we walk in circumstances, as we pray, God grows our faith. We all love a good faith story because it invigorates us to want to believe God. It inspires us to want more of God. And I, I love the college community. We always are, you know, I, I tell faith stories with college students, and they always want to have the one-upper. You know, they, they can't wait for you to be quiet with your faith story so they can tell their faith story. I love that. But this story, this is a different type of faith. Jesus says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Like this is the number one faith story in all of Israel right here. Jesus is communicating that. And as John Bloom, the writer, so eloquently says, when Jesus marvels, we meditate. So what did Jesus marvel at? Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 8. The parallel passages in Matthew 7, or Luke 7, I want you to, to, to hold your finger there because we're going to flip a little bit because I want you to see some things that I think is incredible. So Jesus has just, let me, let me parachute us into the context of the passage. Jesus has just, um, he has just preached uh, hands down, the best sermon that has ever been preached on planet Earth up to this point. He preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as he comes down off the mountain, he sees a leper. That's what James preached about last week. And Jesus heals the leper. And then Jesus, on the same day, meets this moment, this centurion. And, and, and look at what it says in verse 5 with me. He entered Capernaum. A centurion came forward, appealing to him. And I want you to see this. The centurion is appealing to him. The, the centurion is about to show you that he trusts humbly in Christ. Now, the book of Matthew is written as a means to show you that God's kingdom is coming. That is the big theme of the book of Matthew. God's kingdom is coming. And here we find a centurion. Now, do you know how odd this is? A centurion uh, is a Roman officer he has a hundred soldiers under his care. The only reason why he is in Palestine at the current time is to oppress the Jews. That's why he is there. He did not grow up in a religious background. He, did, he had very limited means uh, and, and, of, of trusting Jesus. He's only heard a little bit about Jesus. And look what the centurion's problem is. Look at verse 6. He says, Lord, notice that. He addresses Jesus as Lord. My servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. So there's two things that we can see wrong with this centurion's servant. One is he is paralyzed. Two is he is in great pain. But there's a third thing if we look in the book of Luke. I think it's in verse 2. It says that he's to the point of death. So Dr. Luke paints that picture for us. This, centur or this, this servant of the centurion is at the point of death. This is no ordinary centurion. Here is a man 
who, uh, he, he actually sends, in this passage, you see the centurion coming, but it's actually a, 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 an ancient practice uh, to send someone on your behalf as if they were you. We see that in the book of Luke. The book of Luke says that he sent Jewish elders to represent him before Jesus. And so these Jewish elders come out uh, um, to Jesus to represent a Roman soldier. This is amazing. Jesus is seeing this come at him, and you have to see the, the oddness in this. So Jewish leaders aren't typically fond of, of pagan Romans who are oppressing them. Pagan Romans aren't typically fond of Jewish leaders who say, we represent the one true God and your king is not a king to us. Your emperor means nothing. Tiberius, no, no game here. It's Yahweh for us. This doesn't typically coordinate and, and blend together. And so Jesus sees this and he's intrigued. Hmm. Maybe the Father's doing something here. God's doing something in this centurion's life. His request is very humble. He is appealing. He is trusting humbly in Christ's goodness. He is appealing to Jesus. His servant is on his deathbed, and he has no other means of healing him. There is no more medical attention that I could possibly give him. He is in pain. He is suffering terribly. He is suffering paralysis. He is going to die, and I cannot heal him. There's only one man that I know of, that has the possibility, the potential to do this kind of work. There's only one man in all of Israel. His name is Jesus. You know, I wonder how many of our neighbors are spiritually paralyzed. They try to get up and walk with God. They try to come to church they try to do spiritual things. They try to pray at night, but they're to no avail. They, they find themselves always drifting away from God. They try to stop drinking. They try to stop smoking. They try to raise their children right. They just drift. They're paralyzed, and they're suffering. They can't figure out, why is my life not satisfying the way it's supposed to be satisfying? And so they try to numb their pain with the fleeting pleasures of the world. Oh, how great would it be if God raised up a people like the centurion that would spiritually appeal to Jesus through prayer? What could this church look like? What could our suffering neighbors be like if we interceded on behalf of them? It's a good question for us to think. So the centurion comes. You would ask the question, how does Jesus respond to the centurion uh, coming? We see that the centurion is appealing to Jesus. He, he, that's one way that he comes humbly. We see that the centurion sends Jewish leaders to show Jesus honor. I'll send even your people. That's another way that we see the centurion's humbleness. Uh, and, and here's what happens. Jesus says something amazing. He says, I will come and heal him. Verse 7, I will come. You know what's amazing is Jesus has already come in the flesh at that point. This is the reason why I have come. I have come to heal. At the end of 
uh, Matthew 7, it says, When Jesus finished the sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as a scribe. Jesus was teaching in a way that was so much more other than, and now we find ourselves in a passage where he is proving the authenticity of his teaching. I have power, not just in what I'm saying, but to make what I'm saying come to pass through my healing. And so Jesus says, I will come and I will heal your servant. You know, we see people being brought to Jesus all through the scriptures. We see babies. We see, we see children. We see friends. We don't see servants. We don't see, we don't see people bringing servants we definitely don't see a Roman centurion bringing a servant. Do you see the humility in that? He is a Jewish servant. A servant would have been a slave. He is nothing to me. He is nothing more than property. But no, 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 no. This centurion loved his servant. This centurion sends everything he has to appeal to Jesus humbly. He trusts in Jesus humbly. And Jesus says, I will come and I will heal him. Matthew Henry writes this. Humble souls are made more humble by Christ's gracious condescension to them. Humble souls are made more humble by Christ's gracious condescension to them. When Jesus says, I will come and I will heal him, the Jewish leaders go, they send word back to Jesus. And as Jesus is walking towards this house to go and heal this servant, uh, of this centurion, the centurion sends word back to Jesus. You could, you could almost see him saying to one of his servants, I want you to run as fast as you can back out to Jesus, and I want you to tell him something. And Jesus is walking with this entourage, and he is walking with his Jewish leaders to go and heal this servant, and here's what happens. A, a, someone meets them along the way and says, brings the leaders together, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus is standing by, and you can just see them uh, talking and having a small conference call real quick, we have a word from our, our, our centurion master. And you know, the Jewish leaders, when they represented their centurion master, they said this, Jesus, you should come. Our master is worthy. Look at that in Luke 7 real fast. Just go there real quick. I want you to see this. This is amazing. Verse 4, Luke 7, it says, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He is worthy, Jesus. He is worthy for you to come. He is a centurion. Every time centurion is mentioned in the Bible, it is, a, it is someone who has high character. They have strong leadership. He is worthy for you to come. He loves our nation, Jesus. He has built our synagogue where we worship Yahweh. You should come and heal this man. But look at the word the centurion sends back out to Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 8. Look at what the centurion says. Verse 8. Matthew 8 verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. What did the centurion understand? See, these Jewish leaders that were representing the centurion believed he is worthy. He has done these good works. Jesus, he's got a good track record. You should invest in him. But that's not what the centurion saw. The centurion did not just see a good teacher who had power. The centurion saw something completely different. And because he saw something completely different, he saw God in the flesh 
he saw this is the long-awaited Messiah. The centurion saw himself as unworthy, even though he was a leader of leaders. The centurion realized, I am under authority under the Roman government, but I'm also under the authority of the creator of the universe, and Jesus is that creator. You're going to see that very clearly in just a second. Why should we trust humbly? How does that even play into our, our having audacious faith? Because God is good, and we can trust his goodness. But he doesn't just trust humbly. He believes holy. He believes holy in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 8. After he says, I am not worthy to come under your roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion understands. Jesus, if you say it, it will happen. The word of God claims that it is reliable. The word of God claims that it is powerful. The word of God claims to be the word of God, and this is the word of life in the flesh. Remember John's word in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. This is the word of life. If you say it, it will happen. The word of God is reliable. 1 Kings 8.56 shows us that God's word will not fail. Any of his good promises will not fall to the ground. 1 Kings 8.56, blessed be the Lord who has given us rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. In uh, Psalms 89.34, God promises he will not violate his covenant. He says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. In Isaiah 55, 11, God promises that his word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose that it was set out for. Uh, in uh, 2 Peter 2, uh, or, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, 4, he says, By his word, we are partakers of divine nature. By his word. His word is reliable. We can put our trust in the great promises of God. This centurion understood that. He believed wholly. If you say it, because you are creator, it will come to pass. But it's not just reliable, it's powerful. If you say it, my servant will be healed. God's word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His word will do the work it was set out for. It's an amazing thing to think about how powerful God's word is. You know, there's a story of the great Charles Spurgeon. He was a preacher in, in England, and he was getting ready to preach the biggest sermon uh, to the biggest crowd that he, he had ever preached to. There was going to be over 20,000 people in attendance. He was 24 years old. He shows up at the venue of where he was going to preach uh, and as he's preparing to preach, he shows up a day before just to test the acoustics. And this is, this is multiple layers, uh, multiple balconies up, okay, uh, multiple floors up. And, uh, and as he was testing the acoustics, this is what he said. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is quoting the Word of God unknowingly to him. In the highest part of the building, 
is a janitor working? And when he heard Spurgeon say that three times, do you know what happened to that man? He went face down, and this is what he said, Oh God, if you take away the sins of the world, would you take away my sins? God saved the man that very instance. God's word is powerful. But it's not just powerful. God's word is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It is God's holy word. In, in uh, 2 Peter verses 1, 17 through 21, please write this down. 2 Peter 1, 17 through 21. I want you to go back and look at this. Peter is explaining, we have seen the glory of Christ. We have, I, I witness account of his transfiguration. I saw him in his glory. And then he says something amazing. He goes, even though I saw him in his glory, I saw this miracle. In verse 19, he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How can you be more fully confirmed than seeing the transfigured Christ? Peter makes the argument by trusting the promises of his word because it is living and active and God meets us every single day by his word. So the centurion understood. He believed wholeheartedly. He threw himself on the word of God. The centurion did not need a sign to believe in God. He needed Christ to say the word. Catch that about faith. The centurion did not need a sign. He needed Jesus to say the word. It's an amazing way to think about faith. You know, sometimes in faith, we get, we get on this topic, and it's real easy to doubt God. It's real easy to go, I, I, I just have some doubts. And, and what is the anatomy of doubt? I'll give you three things, the anatomy of doubt, that, that make us not want to always believe in God's promises. One is difficult situations. A difficult situation can oftentimes bring doubt. Two is unmet expectations. My expectations were blown, and so I kind of doubt. Three is a limited perception. I'm only seeing from my lens. I need to see from God's lens. So what is the antidote of doubt? Just, just two things. One would be faith in the Word. That's what we just talked about, that reliable, powerful Word of God. Faith in the Word and a joyful submission to God. You, you, you know, you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, when they were getting ready to get thrown in the furnace, uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, if you do not bow down and worship this idol, this statue of me, I will burn you. And they said, our God can heal us. He can protect us. He will protect us. But even if he doesn't protect us, it doesn't matter. We're not going to bow to this because we only worship the one true living God. And Nebuchadnezzar is shocked. He is appalled. All the nation is watching these three men stand on the promises of God and go, we will not retreat. We will not. Burn us up. <laughs> they throw them in the fire, and you remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar sees three. No, I see four. Didn't we throw three men in that fire, and I see a fourth one? God had come to protect them. And he calls them out. God's word is powerful. It is reliable. It is the word of God. Charles Spurgeon says this, and this is my challenge for you to believe wholly in the word of God. Oh man, I beseech you, 
Do not treat God's promises as if they were curiosities from a museum, but believe them and use them. Believe God's promises and use God's promises. As the centurion said, only say the word, Jesus. If you only say the word, then I know my servant will be healed. In verse 9, he, he gives his understanding of the power of Jesus. He says, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and to uh, another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's something amazing that he says to Jesus. I am a man under authority. When I tell a soldier to go, he goes. He must go or come. He must come because if he doesn't, we could lose a battle and more people could die. There is an immediate obedience. Jesus, I understand when you talk, we are to immediately obey. That's a great understanding by someone who has a limited experience with Jesus and the promises of God as a centurion. Wow. That's great belief. And so Jesus marvels at what the man says. He marvels. Now, let me ask you the question. Does Jesus marvel at the power of this man's faith? Or does Jesus marvel at the object of this man's faith? There's a difference, and this is what I mean. It's not how much, this, how much faith this man had that Jesus marvels at. It's who his faith was in, namely Jesus. It's not how much faith the man had. It's who his faith was in. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. You know, in all of Israel, Jesus turns around after he marvels and he says, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. There were many children that were running around that had memorized the Torah. They knew God's promises. Do they not have great faith? There were many families who were teaching uh, the, the, the Old Testament. There were many teachers who were proclaiming God's divine works in the Old Testament to grow people's faith. And none of them can compare to this man's faith. And I would submit to you, it is not because he had just this great faith. It's because of who he had his faith in. And so Jesus turns around and proclaims this. He says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come and, and they will put their faith in me. You know what Jesus is saying? He is teaching the, the actual opposite of what Israel thought was going to happen. Israel thought all of Israel, ethnic Israel, was going to be the only ones in heaven. They thought because we have a heritage and we have a history, we are going to be the only ones getting in. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. People from all over the world. It came from the mouth um, of God in, in uh, Isaiah 53, 1. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, 1. Isaiah 52, 15 says, So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. God has promised to reach out to the Gentiles. 
And this centurion is actually a first fruit of that promise coming to fruition. Why does Jesus marvel? Partly because he sees the centurion believes, and he believes completely in me. No one in Israel has thrown themselves on me. No one in Israel has trusted me for salvation and deliverance the way that this man has trusted me in this moment. And so he says this amazing statement. From the east and the west, all of these Gentiles will come, and this man is the first fruits of it. And what will they do when they come to me? They will recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven. And they will recline at the table with your forefathers, the ones that you think you're going to recline with because of their faith. They have devotion. You don't have devotion. You're going to see that in just a second. But he says they will recline at the table. Why are they reclining at the table? Because they have rested in the Messiah who has fulfilled the law. See, all of Israel had not done that yet. Look at what Jesus then says, to shame Israel, the one with the covenant, the one with the word of God, the one who's had all opportunities to believe in the Messiah, and now the Messiah is here, and they're about to miss him. And so Jesus gives a word. As surely as this man is here saved, the Father had promised this, and as surely as this man's servant will be healed, this will happen to you if you do not repent. Here's what he says, verse 12, this dark sentence. While the sons of the kingdom, ethnic Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's such a scary verse for me and for you as we look at this. Why are they being thrown out? Because they believed, because of my heritage and because of my history, I will practice a religious routine. I will go through the motions I'll memorize the Old Testament. But when it comes to a devotion to you, Jesus, I'm not so sure. And Jesus says, that will send you straight to hell. How many of you, I say this with love in my heart, how many of you are just going through the motions? How many people do you know that are just going through the motions And on that great day with what Jesus had just said in Matthew 7, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. How many of you are going through the motions? Oh, I pray, dear friends, for you this morning that you would not be going just religious routine. I come to church because I'm supposed to come to church. But that you would come to church to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. That's what he's calling for. And he says, I will throw them into an outer darkness. And there will be weeping. There will be great sorrow. And there will be a gnashing of teeth. They will will hate God because they feel like I got the the raw end of the deal, God. And Jesus is telling them, I am going to go to the cross. I am going to die for your sins. And if you reject me, there is no rest for you in heaven. The only way we get into heaven is by grace and grace through faith in Christ alone. So how does Jesus come out of that time? He says that dark statement, and and Israel is sitting there, and they're just appalled at what Jesus is saying. And then to validate his statement that this will come to pass, he looks at the centurion, and look what he says. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, 
let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Two observations from verse 13. The centurion did not just believe wholeheartedly, he boasted only in Christ. And so we see Jesus say, go. As you have believed, I've healed your, I've healed your servant. Now, the servant benefited from this, this great exchange with Jesus. Can you imagine the centurion who didn't need a sign? He needed, he needed Jesus to say the word. And could you imagine? He believed in Jesus. He had a, a rock-solid faith in Jesus. Jesus commends him for it in front of everybody. But can you imagine what it would have been like when he sent the Jewish elders, and as he's coming back, he looks at his servant, and his servant, who is paralyzed and in pain and dying, stands up and goes, I'm ready to go back to work. I love you. He healed me. Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine this centurion on his knees with, with, this, with this servant? And they're both praising God, going, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him healing me. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Oh, God, we will worship you. And they're worshiping together. A man of the Roman Empire who's supposed to be oppressing the Jews, who's supposed to have only allegiance to his king, is worshiping the king of ages. And so the neighbor or the, uh, the, his servant is healed. Now what would that have done for his faith? He believed, but his faith would have gotten stronger because of the action. And it is with us. We believe, but we ask God to grow our faith. Help us grow in our faith. And so God gives us instances like this in our life. He gives us faith stories. And look at what he says to Centurion. As you have believed, he commends his request. Oh, that God would look at me and you. And, and he would say to us, as we pray for our neighbors, as you have believed, I have done. How many of your neighbors that are suffering for spiritual paralysis, they're suffering and in pain, and they're headed for an eternal death, will be healed because of your prayers to King Jesus. This is the faith in Jesus only, by his promises, that still marvels Christ today. This is the invitation that God has for me and for you. I want to show you this. We're going to give this to you at the end of the service. This is a prayer card that we have for you. And I want to tell you, Part of the reason that made me want to preach on audacious faith today is that you personally would trust God humbly, that you would believe God wholly, and that you would boast only in Jesus Christ. That you would take this card. This card represents what we would like to do with Cape Bible Chapel, which is an Easter blitz. What we mean simply by that is this. There's many of our neighbors that are suffering like we've just discussed. And we want to begin to pray for them. We want to begin to reach out to them. And, and we would love to give you two things each week leading up to Easter. We would love to give you a prayer request. And we would love to give you a ministry action step. We would love for you to consider doing this with us. To step out on the rope of God's promises. To walk across the water. To walk across the street and extend an invitation to your neighbor. Of God's love his unbreakable love. 
there's three requests on here. The first request is the one I want to talk with you about today. My prayer is that when we meet on Easter Sunday, it would culminate. All of our praying over the course of the uh, next couple of weeks, all of our reaching out, our, our, our trying to see if our neighbors or friends that we have in the city, that we would invite them and that when we come here on Easter Sunday, that we would have to bring out the green chairs. That at the back of the sanctuary, people would have to sit in the green chairs because God has so worked among, the, among us. But let me share something with you about that request. It is only a means to the greater end, which is to have a greater trust in the object of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. God can, God will, but even if he doesn't, we will worship Christ together. Would you join us in this prayer and action plan to reach out uh, in our city? We'll give you action steps each week that we would ask that you would faithfully and by faith live out And I'm praying that it would grow you audaciously to follow Jesus. There would be so many faith stories. We would not just be hearing faith stories. We would have our own stories because of this time. I'm trusting God for that. In 1895, and I'll end on this. In 1895, there was a man named Charles Blondin. He was known for tightrope walking. And he came out uh, to the Niagara Gorge, Uh, that's located between um, America and Canada, uh, and he was getting ready to do a tightrope act. There's people on both sides who were going to be cheering um, for Blondin. Blondin has a 40-pound pole, uh, and he carries it out uh, on the rope, and he walks across the the Niagara Gorge with, with no net. And the crowd is blown away. They, this is amazing that Blondin can do this. And then Blondin asks this question. How many, how many of you believe that I could carry you across? Who would be willing to get on my back and let me carry you across the Niagara Gorge? And many said, I believe, I believe, I believe. But when it was time, they said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get on your back because if we fall, we die. <laughs> and so one poor soul said, I'll do it. His name was Harry Colcord. He was Blondin's manager. He gets on Blondin's back, and they begin to make their way across the Niagara Gorge, and they get about 10 meters from the other side, and as they get about 10 meters from the other side, the rope begins to fray and break. Blondin says uh, to uh, Harry, Harry, I want you to get down and put your hands on my shoulders. He puts his hands on Blondin's shoulders and, and And Blondin says, Harry, you are no longer Harry Colcord. You are now Charles Blondin. And then Blondin throws throws his pole, and they both sprint together, and they get across right as the rope is breaking. The crowd goes crazy. That's the same for us with Jesus. Jesus says, would you put your hands on the back of my promises? And would you step out on the waters like Peter did? Would you step out on the rope of my promises? Would you follow me in fishing for men? Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you so much that you are God and that you are not bound by distance.
that you are not bound by debilitation, and you are not even bound by death. For you have conquered death on the cross and rose on the third day. I pray that we would have the boldness, the courage, and the faith to step out on your promises now and to reach our neighbor with this message of reconciliation. God, give us words of life. I pray you would save many, and I pray that there would be many faith stories for us to tell in the years to come because of this next four weeks. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.